Turn with me to Mark chapter 14, as we will be looking at the first 11 verses of Mark chapter 14 today. As we near the end of this book, we are near the end, but it will take us a little while to get through this, but pretty much everything from this point forward concerns, directly concerns the death and resurrection of Christ. And so before we go to his word, let's go to him in prayer and ask for help. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we are thankful that we are praying to one who is right now even at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us with your word. This is something that is, is difficult for us. It is eternal, and even that makes it beyond our understanding, but then coupled with the fact that we just don't like to listen. It makes it hard sometimes. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us, that you would help us to understand the eternal things, that you would give us wisdom and understanding, but that you would also convict us of our sin that convinces us that you're not right and that we are. Bring us closer to you through that. Teach us what we ought to know concerning you and how we ought to act in this world and in our lives in devotion to you. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So this week, as I read through this passage, it made me think of the concept of being a fan. You know, like a a person who follows a team or celebrity, not like a box fan or something like that. So we probably, when you think of a fan, you probably think of one particular kind of thing, and you're probably a fan of something like, you know, I'm a fan of the St. Louis Cardinals. I'm a fan of some craftsmen on YouTubes. I'm a fan of a few pastors and theologians. And one important distinction of being a fan is that you start to have some dedication to following them and you start to have some dedication to caring about their successes and their failures and then even you can kind of go into this uh, mode of being a fan where you start to think that they are just incapable of failure some of the ideas of your some of your ideas that you have to them or have of them are kind of these self-confirming things that you'll always believe and can't be Proved wrong about the things that you love or the people that you love. You know, like, I'm a fan of R.C. Sproul. I'll say something like, R.C. Sproul was the greatest theologian of the 20th century. That's kind of a self-confirming bias that I have of him. I believe it's fine to have that. It's fine. But it's hard then to accept any failures that he might have had. I believe the Cardinals were the best team in the 20th century. Okay, that's hard to... To accept, but I don't want to accept any failures that they may have had. I think you get the idea. There's nothing wrong with being a fan, but it can be taken too far. You, you've all read these stories. I think the most famous instance of this is there was a fan of John Lennon by the name of Mark David Chapman. And he was such a big fan of John Lennon that when Lennon started to say and do things that Chapman disagreed with, well, Lennon just couldn't be alive anymore. And so Mark David Chapman killed John Lennon. Sounds crazy, but it demonstrates something good can be made bad because, you know, we are at our core sinful. So what does this have to do with Mark chapter 14? 
Well, we have both sides of that coin in our text today, but being a fan is really a poor category for this. Instead, we have this kind of true devotion that you see as this woman uh, worships before the feet of Christ. And then you have a, a false kind of devotion and what that false devotion can usher in as we see the Pharisees and the scribes and we see Judas betraying our Lord. And I think these distinctions are important in our lives and it can separate followers of Christ from those who just like the idea of following Christ. Those that have this different idea of who Christ should be even and who they want to follow and so they make christ in their own image and so as we consider this text i want to consider two ideas in service to self and then in service to the lord and so with that let's look together at the text mark chapter 14 starting at verse 1 please stand with me in the honor of the reading of god's holy word mark chapter 14 starting at verse 1 it was now two days before the passover and the feast of unleavened bread And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking now, or how, to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There was some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you. But And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told to you in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when he had heard it, and when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So lots of ups and downs in our text today. It's kind of a roller coaster ride. So remember the context. Jesus is dealing with these priests, these chief priests, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. He beat them at their own game as they came to him with all these questions. And now they're just like, you know what, we can't do this anymore. We're just going to have to take him out. And so they want to kill him. And so this passage comes right after, remember, Jesus teaching last week as we looked at Mark 13, teaching on these future things which culminates in the second coming of Jesus, him gathering up his children to himself. So consider that comparison, that the difference between those things. Jesus is talking about this glorious future in one chapter, in 13, and in the next, we're snapped back to the present, and we're hearing about he's going to die at the hands of sneaky, corrupt people. From this point in the text going forward, we're going to get much more detail from Mark. And you're going to see this, almost this uh, just daily recording of what's going on even the days and the hours are recorded in many instances the crucifixion and the resurrection of christ are the most important events in human history so mark wanted to make sure that he was thorough but at the same time being concise which we're, we're thankful for 
The other gospel writers go into a lot more detail in places here, so we're going to borrow from them as we look at the retelling of this. But Mark is getting to a particular point. It causes us to question how we serve the Lord and what that looks like. And that brings me to the first point in service to self. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. It was now two days before the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. Seeking to arrest him by stealth and kill him. And then if you look at 10 and 11, they kind of pair this. They kind of work really well together, right? You have one group that's seeking to kill him and destroy him, yet they don't want to do so out in the open because, well, it would cause an uproar of the people. Remember, Jerusalem has increased from 50,000 to 250,000 during this week because of all the pilgrims, a lot of whom have come to see this Jesus who does these these miracles, right? And so to, to cause a problem would, would, would not have been good. And so you pair that with this one man who makes it really easy for them. They don't have to make a big deal of it. They can do it in this sneaky kind of way. It's almost like these two passages, these two verses on either end are like bookends. They wrap up the whole story and they have this mirrored kind of effect. Verses 1 and 11 match up really well if you see it. Two days before the Passover, they wanted to seek out a way to arrest him by stealth and kill him. Verse 11, when they heard it, they were glad. And then he sought an opportunity to do this. How was he going to betray him? Was it going to be out in the open? No, it was going to be at night. Sneaky. He was going to do it really sneaky. Well, look at verse 2. They didn't want to do it. Well, verse 10, they didn't want to do it out in the open. Verse 10 tells us that he snuck off to them to betray them. He went to them in order to betray him. This would eliminate the need for it being a public kind of thing. I love how Mark does this very much on purpose here. And he wraps up the story of this whole devotion of this woman who showers uh, Jesus with all of her devotion. Really, really interesting way of doing this. And think about this from the vantage point of the priests. They wanted this to be quick. They wanted it to be in order as well, meaning that it's not going to be a full frontal assault on Jesus. They had to kind of go through the back door. This, this word by stealth in the ESV is what I read from. Probably a better translation would be by trickery. I think even probably the New King James uses by trickery. Very similar word to what we see back in my favorite chapter, Genesis 3. Because what does it say of the, of the serpent? That he was more crafty than any other beast in the garden. Interesting, right? That they would, they have this same kind of deceit. What was, what was Satan's uh, ploy in the garden to overthrow the king, to take the throne for himself, to subvert any authority that Jesus had or that the Lord had? And I think this is interesting that this dialogue that follows shows just that. And so think about that in the context of Mark 14. These scribes and these Pharisees and priests, they believe the Messiah was going to come. Absolutely, they believe that. Jesus comes, and the circumstances that they've dreamed up in their head about what the Messiah should look like and what he should be doing didn't really come to fruition. They wanted this, the whole Roman occupation thing to end. Jesus wasn't about ending that. In fact, he was going to die by Roman hands. And so when they realized that this was going on, Jesus had to die. He wasn't the person they wanted him to be. Jesus refused to elevate their station. And so they had to eliminate him. And then consider Judas's motive as well, which we aren't given in Scripture. 
So we have to be really careful. But Judas had a motive. Turn with me to John chapter 12. As we see this same narrative being played out. John chapter 12. This is the same same story. And in this story, we're, we're given a name for the lady. It's Mary, brother of Lazarus, which we'll mention that in a little bit. Look with me particularly at verses 4 through 6. So Mary did the same thing. She broke the, the jar and put it on Jesus' feet. And they objected. But in John's account, we get a more detailed accounting of what the objection was. Verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said... Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, and this is, this is John's insight into this. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So we get a little bit more insight into what's going on with Judas. He was a thief. He was sneaky and crafty. He wanted them to think that he cared for the poor, but in reality, he cared about lining his own pocketbooks. In John chapter 11, you read about this order that the scribes and or that the chief priests and the Pharisees put out in order to find Jesus. They kind of attach a reward. They're looking to find him. Jesus isn't necessarily easy to find. Remember, it's a big city, and it's, it's hard to find him. And so they want to be able to do this sneaky, so they put out this order. Judas probably hears about it. His lust for money sinks its final teeth into him, and he goes and he betrays his Lord. The chief priests and the Pharisees and Judas all had seemingly good intentions until you look at their hearts. Let's pair that with what Jesus says in Mark chapter 14 concerning the disciples' reaction. What did he say when they did that? He said, leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing. You will always have the poor. You will not always have me. And the disciples thought, well, we could have used this money to do a lot of good things. But but Jesus corrects them by calling the woman's act of worship a beautiful thing. And it kind of calls to question, what do we consider beautiful things? When I was in youth ministry, parents would come to me all the time wanting me to organize service projects for their kids. We want our kids to be service-oriented. And I thought, yeah, I do too. So in order to help them be service-oriented, what I did was regularly preach the gospel to them. And for some of them, what I saw was I saw their hearts change, that their devotion to Christ invariably always leads to acts of service, serving, caring, loving people every single time. But in general, when I looked at the youth group, I saw a few kids devoted to Christ and a lot of others who were there because their parents brought them, because they didn't have a choice. So I stayed the course. I continued to preach the gospel, and the parents just got upset. And they're like, look, we want these service opportunities instead of teaching. One parent even said to me, the gospel is fine, but we need some real-world application. And another parent, who was less crafty, (laughs) said, are you going to plan service projects? Because if not, my kid's going to have to get their service hours for graduation somewhere else. And so it became clear. It wasn't about service at all. It was about some dumb diploma. Now, don't hear me say 
that acts of service are bad. They're not. Christians should be serving others way before anyone else signs up to do it, in fact. And they should be leading the charge when it comes to serving the poor, the needy, those who otherwise wouldn't have things or wouldn't otherwise have a chance or a voice in the world. Christians should be doing that for them. Absolutely. But why do we do it? Do we do so for its own sake? Or do we do so for the sake of Christ? And again, this isn't about service necessarily, but about these ideas that we have about the Savior that aren't true. That we can do this without Him. That we make our own truth in spite of His. We talked about this in Sunday school. The Pharisees wanted a society in which everyone was completely devoted to God, in fact. They wanted a society in which everyone was completely devoted to the law. And this Jesus was saying in order to be saved, you had to be completely devoted to Him, not the law. The law only leads to death, is what He said. Jesus wanted all the money for Himself. Yet Jesus said it was perfectly okay to spend a year's worth of wages in devotion to him. So what about for us? What part of our faith do we hang on to that helps our cause but doesn't show us that we are devoted, or show anyone for that matter, that we are devoted to Christ? Something that we have to ask ourselves. That brings me to the next point in service to the Lord. Look at me at verse 3. While he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it all and poured it over his head. Very full verse there. They're at a friend's house. They're in Bethany. Remember, Bethany was the little town down the road from Jerusalem where they stayed with their friends. Mary, Martha, Lazarus lives there. Apparently, someone by the name of Simon the leper lived there as well. We don't know much about Simon the leper other than he probably wasn't a leper any longer, you know, because he was living in a town and a house that other people were in. But he kept this name for some reason. I like to think of these when I hear these names. You don't hear names in Scripture a whole lot, particularly in the New Testament. So it, it should cause us to think... When you see names like this, it's probably because people who read this would have known who Simon the leper was. And they were like, oh yeah, I've heard about him. It's pretty neat, but we don't really have a whole lot of stories about him. So it's one of those stories that we can just wait to glory to hear about. Tell us about Simon the leper. I'd like to hear his story. Well, maybe one day we'll get to hear it. Anyway, that's an aside. And a woman comes in while they're sitting there reclining at table and breaks a flask and pours this perfume that's in there all over Jesus. Super strange to us, right? Can't imagine that happening in our present day. It'd be really strange. So it needs some explaining. The closest thing to this nard that we can understand would be like essential oils, right? We have these essential oils today. They're basically these highly distilled, concentrated plant juices. And it only takes a small bit to make a big difference, right? You can just have a little bitty bit of this stuff and... Apparently, you can heal everything with it. But no, you can definitely smell them, right? They're really, really strong. It doesn't take a whole lot of this to, to do something. And so in those days, these essential oils were used in things like perfume, especially. But they were also used in wine and in other things. And since this particular version, this pure nard that is being, uh, being mentioned here, would have only been found in India. And here we are all the way in Jerusalem. This was very expensive. There's a philosopher and other things by the name of Pliny the Elder. You've probably heard of Pliny the Elder. He was kind of a 
Roman Renaissance man, 1,500 years before the actual Renaissance, he said, he, one of his kind of ways of talking about this was that the only proper way to store nard was in alabaster. And alabaster was this really expensive rock, you know, and so it represented luxury and opulence. And so this ointment or this jar or whatever she had would have been sculpted to have this long neck. And the purpose of the long neck protected its contents from being spilled. It's really expensive stuff, you know, that's worth a year's worth of wages. You wouldn't want to just accidentally knock over. And so it was sealed up so that you couldn't spill it. You had to break the end of it off in order to use it. And that's exactly what this woman did. She broke the neck of the little flask off and she poured its contents onto Jesus. And this woman we read in Mark or in John 12 was Mary, the brother or the the sister of Lazarus, remember Lazarus, and one of Jesus' very close friends. And if you read her accounts and the accounts about her and John, you get the idea that she was a devout worshiper of her Lord, Jesus. Pretty interesting stuff. And so everyone there knew what had happened. She breaks this flask. She pours its contents over Jesus' head. This represented a big lump sum of money. Imagine a year's worth of salary and this little bottle had that in there. This is the kind of thing that you did for someone who was about to die or who was already dead, excuse me, to anoint their head with these oils. This is a way to honor them. It's also a way to kind of stave off the stink, the literal stink of death, but it honored that dead person. And so here is Mary knowing what's about to happen to Jesus, knowing full well why he's in Jerusalem and doing this. Everyone there saw this. They knew it happened. It was shocking. They didn't really have a category for it. Imagine your most prioritized worldly possession, the thing that you prize the most. Or just imagine a large check. Imagine taking that thing then and sacrificing it at the feet of, of Jesus in devotion to him. And think about that. Think about someone just walking forward and bringing a check for a hundred grand and putting it in the box. And what's our thoughts there? Our first reaction might be the same, right? Well, couldn't you have just used that money to do something good? Couldn't you have fed the poor? Couldn't we have gone on a mission trip? Couldn't we do fill in the blank, whatever? Instead, it was just used that right then to worship Jesus. And if you say it that way, and if you think about it that way, and we all have done this, we've all done this at some point in our life, you lump yourself in with this group that makes this kind of distinction when it comes to devotion to our Lord. We usually do this. We don't do it with ourselves so much. We do it with when other folks, when other folks do have these acts of devotion. We lump them in. A friend of mine used to work at a church in Carville near Memphis and he worked there for years and this church decided they were going to build a new sanctuary and sparing no expense. They were spending a ton of money on their new sanctuary and the, the stated purpose for this was to make a building that was beautiful in devotion 
to the Lord. And you can almost predict what people said based on what we just read. Couldn't you just spend that money toward the community? You say you love the community. Why not just give that to them instead? It was almost like replaying this in a modern context. Now, did that church help the community? Absolutely, lots. Their members were involved in all kinds of service organizations, helped in many different ways. Yet, when it came to the money that they had, people had something to say. Why? Because their own love of money was shining through. Now, understand here, the takeaway for us isn't no service to others, just love Jesus. I'm not saying that. I think it might be easy for us to go off the rails that. Not at all. In fact, if you aren't loving others, if you aren't serving others, if you don't show that in some tangible way, you don't love Jesus. That's the real facts. Remember, Jesus said, if you haven't done for the least of these, you haven't done this for me. And so we have to understand, if we're not serving others and loving others, we're showing that we don't actually serve and love our Lord. But we must always examine our hearts with this. Where do we stand when it comes to what Mary did here? Do we stand with the disciples? Do we stand with Judas? That's kind of the antithesis of this whole thing. Is our devotion truly given to Christ? Whether it's in our words or even in our actions. And think about this too from a, from a redemptive kind of context. When it comes to the poor, we show our love for Jesus and how we treat those who are less fortunate. And how do we do that? How do we show our love for Jesus by, by doing that? Well, listen to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Turn there with me if you want to. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Verses 8 and 9. We talked about generosity a few weeks ago. But I kind of want you to see this from this a different vantage point here. Think about what's going on in our passage in Mark 14. And 2 Corinthians chapter 8 starting at verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others... That your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Though he was rich, you know, he said, You'll always have the poor, but you'll only have me for just a little bit of time. Though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor. And so when we see Mary's act here, what do we understand and how should we understand this? She knew this about Jesus. When she saw him, she saw a king. She didn't see a Galilean carpenter. She saw a king. She saw her Lord creator. She knew that he had abundant wealth and power and all that he could ever imagine, that he gave it all up. She became, or he became poor for her sake. And he, and she knew that. And that's what this act of devotion was all about. Yet for your sake, he became poor that so by his poverty, you might become rich. Is he talking about money here? Well, absolutely not. Of course not. Some people are born rich. But no one is born righteous. No one. In fact, everyone is born with an unfixable 
zero balance in the righteousness department. And the only fix for zero balance is for what? For someone to put something in there. For someone to put some wealth in there. Well, who has it to give? If everyone was born with nothing, who has it to give to me? Only one who wasn't born that way, and that's Jesus. He became like one who had no righteousness, though. He became like you and me. He became like Judas and the Pharisees that we read about, like ones who would seek to kill him for his own gain. He became like them. But not only did he become poor, that's what we need to understand here. It didn't stop there. He didn't simply just become poor so that I might become rich, but he made us rich. And that's the great exchange. The poor, the ones who don't have any money, had no means of making any, in fact, could only ever do nothing to help themselves. He made us rich beyond measure. So when it comes to the poor, think about it today and think about our current our current setting. The poor, the ones that don't have money, will always have, will always have that. We should do what we can, absolutely, to help them. In our lives, in our personal lives, as a church, we should be doing these. Yet the one who became truly poor, spiritually devoid, he is right now interceding on behalf of the Father for us, and it's through him that we can only become truly rich. And if you're a believer here this morning, that's you. You have become rich because of what he's done for you. And if you're not, no amount of money, no amount of helping the poor, no amount of any of the things can help you. You'll die thinking that you've done some good and you'll come up against the only one who ever did any good, Jesus. Rather than trust yourself, trust in him. But for those of us who are in the church, in conclusion, how will we respond to this challenge from Jesus? How does our devotion to the Lord look? Is it this self-affirming kind of thing, doing things for the sake of doing things, or do we worship our Lord? Do we have this truly, true devotion to Him, truly coming before His feet and worshiping Him? And that's a struggle that we have. We've talked, we talked about that in Sunday school. It's a struggle that we have, but thankfully, He is right there with us to help us. And so, let us be devoted to Jesus Christ. Let us worship at His feet. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come before you now, we come before you as people who have nothing in and of ourselves, but because of you have everything, every blessing in you we have because of you. We are called joint heirs with the very Son of God because of what you have done, that you became poor so that by your poverty we might become rich so lord help us because this is the only hope for this world and so help us to remember that we have our hope in you not to look to other things that could offer us absolutely nothing but help us to hope in you and also lord help us to offer this same wealth to others where the true riches of this world lie it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.